Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast and this is the 143rd as we head toward the end of July and the end of lockdown in the UK, except for places where it hasn't ended. And there are places you can go without a mask, some places you can't, some places you need proof of vaccination and others you don't. Oh, and there's social distancing in some places but not others. Hopefully that's all clear. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and lockdown might have kind of ended, but it all feels like some big experiment because we have no idea what's going on anymore. There's a bit of social distancing. Some countries you have to quarantine when you get back, but not others. So I think I'm just going to pretend like it's still a lockdown and avoid as many people as possible. Which means I can still go and see soccer again, because here in Scotland some of the games were never that well attended anyway. More craziness in the village. The signs have been changed to reflect that we're now in a UNESCO biosphere, which might mean a COVID bubble, I'm not sure. The speed limit also just got dropped from 30 to 20, and that's in miles per hour. So now people driving through the village will be going 30 miles an hour over the speed limit instead of 20 miles an hour too fast. Also, one of the roads is being torn up and resurfaced. I'm not sure why that one and none of the other ones that also look like Swiss cheese. So it's been a little bit noisy and it's meant that recording has been a bit of a challenge. I've also started trying to make healthier food for our evening meal, which has meant perusing lots of recipes in magazines and online. And I have to say that the recipes online are sometimes hysterical. You have to scroll for about 15 minutes to actually find the recipe once you've got past the story about the writer's dog and the trip to the grocery store and how the aunt showed up unannounced and so on. Just give me the recipe. The other one that got me is I can cook, but I'm not a master chef. So when the recipe says preparation time 10 minutes and cooking time 30 minutes, well, it takes me about 15 minutes to find the ingredients before I even start. And then you've got to peel things and cut them, and that takes way more than the alleged 10 minutes. Yesterday, the can opener and I had a big argument, so that took forever as well. And what's worse, when your hands are covered with all kinds of gunk, the phone goes to sleep, so you've got to wake it up, enter the security code, and then wipe the screen because it's got a mix of garlic and chilli all over it. Still, it's been fun, and most of the meals have been decent so far. But that's not what we're supposed to be talking about on the podcast, so I will let you know who our guests are today. On the podcast this week, we have conversations with Change Foods founder and CEO David Booker, Mark Robert, Technical Director, Food and Beverage Solutions at Tate & Lyle, and Peter Lamb, COO of Adventa Bioscience. And of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets, and this week it's with Charlie Highland at Stonex. But before that, if you're a frequent listener, and sorry, but there's no such thing as frequent listener points to win prizes, but you will know that what comes next is the look at the news we've had over the past seven days. Ulma introduced a new packaging machine for cheese portions. The Good Crisp Company launched immune-boosting cheese balls, and DSM has expanded its cheese biopreservation portfolio. Some of Friesland Campina's trucks are now hydrogen-powered, Orkla has acquired a Swiss ice cream ingredients supplier, and IMA Dairy and Food introduced some new tools for eco-conscious monomaterial packaging. First Milk published its financials in the UK, and researchers in China have developed a smartphone sensor for on-site detection of E. coli in milk. 
The Canadian government has funded three more Quebec dairy processors, Pro-Ampac opened its new innovation centre, and Unified Brands has developed the Cheeser Station to help pizza restaurants reduce waste. Synergy Flavors has developed a new fruit flavor range, and we had a bit of a fun story with the news Lithuania is tempting tourists with unusual food. And examples in the dairy sector are smoked mackerel ice cream and dill-flavored ice cream. I think I'll pass. You can read all of these and plenty more at dairyreporter.com, where you can also register for our webinar on dairy alternatives, which is coming up very quickly. Next Thursday, in fact. And if you're not sure if you can make it or not, or the timing isn't right, well, register anyway and you can listen after the live broadcast. So let's get to this week's first guest. Adventa Bioscience is a company dedicated to improving adult human health, and it announced the launch of TrueLacta, the world's first and only supplement made entirely of human milk. To tell us about the company and TrueLacta is Peter Lamb, COO of Adventa Bioscience. All right, so to start, I wonder if you could give me a bit of background on the company. Adventa Bioscience, it's a company completely based on the science of breast milk. One of the things that we were looking at when we found breast milk as a whole and were really interested about it was how much data there was for kids and pediatrics and neonatal care as a whole. And as you kept digging through, I mean, it's reams, floor to ceiling volumes of all of these benefits that are within human milk. And one of the things that really struck our eye was a similarity between a disease called necrotizing enterocolitis or NEC, which is this major inflammation of the gut, which is really a detriment to neonatal babies. We were thinking around inflammation this entire time around neck and how big of a death sentence, unfortunately, it is for neonates. But it does similarly present the way a lot of adult issues go. And that could be from you know, a very generic upset stomach kind of inflammation and you're, you're just constantly fighting these GI things all the way through to potential Crohn's as autoimmune diseases and things like that. So we started looking at how could we take all of these things around human milk and turn it into something that the general populace could get into and it could give them obviously not the same severity as anything that would happen in the neonatal market, but maybe it could still provide the same relief as adults. And we started looking at all of that data that corresponded with babies as they're getting older. All of this human breast milk is just so beneficial for them over and over and over again. Yet at a certain point in time, whether it's pharmacological or timing or whatever it would be, it just kind of falls off the map where obviously human beings stop ingesting human breast milk and they're trying to replace it almost to the T with so many different things. And they're trying to replace and these major companies are trying to replicate it. And really it's sitting there, hasn't been touched for millions of years. This is the way that the medicine of the body would work. So we just were really excited about it and tried to figure out the best possible way to be able to deliver that back to, again, the general populace. And that was kind of the birth of True Lacta, where um, we got our 
PhDs and some research scientists to help us kind of craft how to do this. And that, again, became the birth of what we wanted to do with this dietary supplement. What is Trulacta? It's a dietary supplement. It's a capsule. It's 100% raw human milk. I say raw in the very general sense of the term. Nothing else has been done to it. It's not cut with anything. There's no other additives or supplements in that milk. All it is is a pre-vetted human breast milk. So it's tested for bloodborne pathogens through the moms. It's tested for microbials. It's tested for drug and alcohol. It's tested for all of these components that could potentially make somebody sick. Then it's essentially pooled at a huge volume. And then it's converted into essentially like a snowflake. And we repackage that into the capsules and are able to disperse it as a supplement. So it's the first ever 100% human milk dietary supplement. Is it just sourced from human milk? It's, it's not, you don't do anything to it? Or how do you get from the milk to the capsule? We purchase from milk banks that we vet out. So the, the milk banks have to have certain criteria. They have to be able to show that they compensate their mothers. They have to be able to show that they go through a specific vetting process. So we know that the milk that we're receiving is clean. We do an FDA process of ensuring that the milk that comes in the door meets all of our standards and meets all of these uh, specs that we laid out. Low to zero microbial loads, again, no bloodborne pathogen, no drug and alcohol contamination. And we source that nationally. Every donor that we get is US-based. And then once we get the volume that we need, we can convert it very simply. We've been able to pull this proprietary manufacturing process together where we can stretch the amount of volume very efficiently and turn that powder, if you will, into a really high yield product. We're not wasting anything that is coming from these donors that we're purchasing from the bank. And we can make a ton of capsules at one time. Once we were able to, if you will, go from donor all the way through to capsule and show that that's a reproducible model at a really high yield, that's when we went into full production to say, okay, we're comfortable to be able to launch and and do this long term. And it's already available and you just take it like a vitamin pill? It looks a little bit smaller than a a lot smaller, but it's almost like a Dayquil or a NyQuil capsule. Any other probiotic that somebody would take, it's about that same size. Dependent upon what you're looking for, what we've seen for a lot of folks is if they, some of the symptomatic relief that they've had, certainly in the GI tract, but a lot of folks have had significantly better sleep through this product as well. That's from certainly some of the trace melatonin, tryptophan that's actually in human milk, but it's also a lot of these enzymes and peptides that regulate some of the circadian rhythms. So when a baby nurses, yes, it racks out because it's completely full and it's a little baby and now it's it eight, now it's time to go <laughs> to take a nap for a while. But it also at night, the moms are regulating that baby's sleep patterns so they fall asleep more soundly and more deeply. And what we found is that that is actually happening to a lot of our customers as well. So if somebody's looking for sleep relief, we recommend taking two at night, about an hour before bed. If someone is really looking for the daily GI relief, they could stagger it, take one in the morning, one in the evening, but it's a dietary supplement if they wanted to take two in the morning, two in the middle of the day, it's, it's really up to them. We just recommend at this point, 
that they did take two capsules a day for the best results. You mentioned the fact, the the testing that you have to do in terms of making it safe. What about the product analysis for how efficient it is and for what it does? Have you done lots of studies on that? So we're in the process to do that even more. We've had an original anecdotal study that was done just as a proof of concept as we were kind of moving through what our original product is going to be. Uh, We had a naturopath that gave this to a handful of his patients. And as we were trying to formulate what dosage and volume and all those types of things would look like, he was um, providing it to his patients if they would like to, and gave us a very brief 40 patient look into what was actually happening. And uh, we had about an 86% return rate on positive results. So we found out that the there was there. It gave us a good opportunity to create the product and launch but under no uncertain terms are we done researching this. There are so many complex things in human milk that we know are there and we know are present and we've done the composition of matter to show that, but how they're in adults is a totally different thing than what has been widely established in babies and pediatrics. But human milk oligosaccharides are a big topic of conversation right now. Human milk oligosaccharides are actually present, obviously, within human breast milk, and they survive all of the processing that we put through uh, the milk. We can adapt all of our future research specifically based on HMO symptomatic responses, which we need to do. We need to do a much deeper dive into a full GI paneling? Do we attack specific disease states? Do we go after medical food grade regulation here in the States? So there is a ton of research that needs to be done. Adventa is really based and going to be committed to doing that for this first round of dietary supplements. We had the anecdotal study that had already been completed. We're doing another one based on biomarkers currently, and then we're doing another future one with more than likely, it's looking like one of the big universities in the Midwest to do kind of the two-year double-blinded randomized trial and get heavily into that. And that would be in the dietary supplement space. But just for our future things, we're also looking down the road on multiple different applications. Uh, Now that we've been able to change the handling characteristic from liquid to solid, that we can apply this in so many different spaces. So Research for us is a big component. I know for the human milk space globally, it's a big component because there's just so much that we still don't know about it, but we're going to be heavily committed to keep pushing that needle. You mentioned the fact that there are so many components to the breast milk, including HMOs and all kinds of other things. What kind of benefits are you seeing from it? It is very patient-specific. If you look at a GI piece as a whole, One of the more present benefits that we see are some of the more common things that people are experiencing. So reduction in gas, bloating, cramping, stool integrity, a lot of that is coming right out of the gate. If you looked at a market research of all of the GI issues that individuals were having, those would typically sit at the top of the list anyways, where if we're having a positive effect, those would be the first run pieces. But For people that have had more significant lower GI issues, reduction in pain, reduction in potential hemorrhaging, waking up in the middle of the night to have to use the restroom. Again, that lower GI burn is going away. 
And then again, we're seeing a significant amount of sleep improvements. Human milk is one of the best examples of the sum of the parts is greater as a whole than the individual pieces. So as the anti-inflammation components of this start to work, depending upon what is wrong with that patient or that individual that's taking it, all of these benefits can kind of customize for that individual. One of the neonatologists that I had spoken to a long time ago when we had started this process gave a really good synopsis of this where your body is a self-healing machine. It wants to heal itself all day long and it fights a ton of things that are wrong in your body. And what breast milk does is it gives you a thousand arrows to go fight that fight. Some of them you'll need, some of them you won't, but there's so many active components in it that can be beneficial to the body. Breast milk has been shown to upregulate the absorption of iron. So now we have potential anemic patients because of other GI issues, finding relief and their iron counts are going up as we saw through some of our early patient population that we were watching. The milk is allowing the body to do what it's supposed to do. Where is it available currently? Is it just online or is it in stores as well? We're online only. It, you can be direct to our website at www.trilacta.com. And then you can also find us on Amazon. We've been talking about the pandemic beforehand, but obviously people are looking to improve their health. How are you communicating with potential consumers about the benefits of Trulacta? So one of the biggest things around breast milk that makes it unique and something that formula companies have really struggled to replicate have been the natural immunologic components that are in human milk. The tricky part about them is they're very temperature sensitive. Pasteurization is widely known to terminate or degradate a lot of those immunologic benefits. Then you look at the cow colostrum market, which is a huge nutraceutical space because of all of the immunoglobulins that are present and they're selling this out as cow colostrum. Well, the benefit of what we've been able to do as Trulacta is retain all of those immunologic properties to be able to send out in a handling characteristic, very simple in a capsule. And it's all of those immunoglobulins that your body is supposed to take and will recognize immediately. So when you start talking about IgGs, IgAs, IgMs, all of those things are naturally found in breast milk and now in true lacta. As an immunologic support, as a overall health support, true lacta immediately fits into the lines of being able to help in those categories. So what are the next steps for the company as you move forward? Are you looking at new geographies, new products? What's next? New geographies for sure. I would really want to be able to pop this internationally sooner than later. So the new geographies is on the short run. Another iteration of a dietary supplement right now, the capsule is specifically designed to dissolve and disperse in your lower GI tract and survive the stomach acids. Well, what we've also read on the data is a baby potentially ingests this right through the mouth and there are absorption of all of these positive things around human milk from the tongue and the mouth all the way through the GI tract. So we're looking at potentially having a different release of where the human milk bionutrients that we have absorbed throughout the body and being able to potentially stage it as the ingestion goes. 
But then we're also looking at totally different silos for the business. We're looking at topicals and being able to address skin issues, i.e. eczema, psoriasis, potentially wound care or burns. A very common thing for mothers to do is if they get mastitis, their physician tells them to potentially rub some of their own breast milk on their injury. Well, that makes a ton of sense. If it's got all of these beneficial antimicrobials, antivirals, stem cells, healing properties that are going to be beneficial to your skin, why would we not try to follow suit and try to also be able to do that and bring that part to the general populace? So a topical or skin division could be an entire new silo that we're looking at, as well as the biopharmaceutical industry as a whole. As more industries try to replicate what we're doing, do they need to replicate it at all? Or can we be bolt-on technology to already established companies and brands where if they need, for example, we were talking about it earlier, HMOs, well, why would you grow it in an algae farm or, or try to replicate it in some fashion when we actually have human milk oligosaccharides, not the replica of a human milk oligosaccharide? potentially the proteins, potentially the immunoglobulins. It really has no ends on the biopharmaceutical place. So depending upon where we find our best success and where our research leads us to, all of that's hypothetical. If the research comes out that it's not patient beneficial or not really logistically sound, then we'll, we'll pivot and, and stay what we, what we really know. But if we would look five, six, seven years down the road, that's where I would like to move this is Adventa is, yes, we have built our flagship dietary supplement, but there's so many things that human milk could help the general populace for that there's really no needs to stop researching in any one specific category. Sounds like lots of work ahead of you, but lots of exciting work anyway. Yeah, everybody's very excited about where we are and everybody's excited about the progress we've made and about Trulacta as a whole. And then we, we kind of look at the calendar and the R&D and the overall schedules of what we want to accomplish. And we're kind of, whew, we got a lot to keep working on, which is great. It's so researched. And at the same time, there's so much we don't know. And if Adventa can be on the forefront of that and keep pushing and keep trying to establish some of the best practices or new ways to help individuals in any component, whether it's GI, sleep, overall health, well-being, skin issues, whatever it would be, to be able to be on the forefront of this is really exciting. Next, we're going to hear from Change Foods, which is developing animal-free cheese that's identical to the real thing. To tell us how and why is the company's founder and CEO, David Booker. So I guess the, the first question, obviously, is just uh, the company itself, if you could give me a bit of background on the company, because it seems like it's been put together during the COVID age online. So it sounds like it's quite interesting. Yes, exactly. So Change Foods is, uh, I guess, an alternative dairy company that's using precision fermentation technology to recreate cheese and dairy products in future as well. 
It started in Australia. We started our R&D with our co-founder and CTO, who's an associate professor. And his name is Junior Teo up at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane. Officially, the company was founded in 2019. We started the research, however, in May 2020 up at the university. We're continuing to do our research there, but we've set up a US parent company at the start of last year, so around May 2020, to really commercialize this product to market over the next few years. And I guess you're pursuing animal-free cheese as a first product, which is quite different because it's probably the most difficult dairy-free product to mimic, I guess. Oh, it certainly is. It's got its challenges, but also shows the most opportunity. And I think this is where this technology can solve for some of the problems that exist with the current cheese alternatives today. And there's several reasons why we started with cheese. Yes, it's more challenging. However, microbial fermentation technology, I often to refer to it as a sniper rifle technology. It's very precise and it can create bioidentical compounds, but you do have to aim very carefully where you want to point that sniper rifle using that analogy. And so with cheese specifically, once you can really crack the key functional proteins. And in our case, we're also doing some other compounds such as lipids and aromatics. So once you can really sort of hone in and aim at those particular compounds, I think you're then using the technology very wisely to unlock, I guess, the performance gap issues that exist with once again, plant-based and nut-based alternatives today, especially in things like stretchability, meltability, mouthfeel and texture and taste ultimately. Um, And so once you can really use this technology to recreate those compounds, then you're solving and closing that gap for performance. So, and also, you know, it does carry a premium price point, which is important. I mean, commercial viability is a huge challenge for this technology. It's a technology that's been used for many years, for over 40 years, actually, in in other food applications and technologies such as pharmaceuticals and biofuels and so forth and high value products. Whereas now, because of the decreasing cost of this technology over time, we're starting to see it disrupt food products. But the reality is that, you know, for it to work in food, especially with a major structural macronutrient such as protein, then you really have to work on making sure the economics work. And so that's the challenge with this technology. And that's why cheese, once again, people do pay a bit of a premium for cheese because we love cheese, you know, and uh, it's a passion for many people in terms of an indulgent sort of food. And so it just was a natural fit to start with cheese and then use that as a food product to scale your compounds, scale your technology to reduce your production costs ultimately. So then you can pivot and work on other dairy products over time, which tend to be cheaper in market. And as far as the process is concerned, how will you make the cheeses and what will the ingredients consist of? Because one of the knocks against plant-based cheese alternatives has often been nutritional value and a long ingredient list. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's no surprises that I guess current plant-based alternatives, it's not a clean ingredients list. You know, it's very functional. It's just starches, fats like coconut fat. So, you know, it's not really there as a health food. It's purely there as an ingredient. So people can replicate the experience on products such as tacos or pizza, but that's where the sort of the gap exists, right? In terms of that functionality that comes from plant-based proteins. The cheese making process we're doing, we're actually redefining that. You know what I mean? Because this is the first time this has been done using this these type of ingredients. And so we've got, I guess, various methods. And, you know, realistically for the unit economics to work, it might have to start 
with a method whereby we have to combine other plant-based ingredients as well to make it work. So it'll be a combination of our compounds with other plant-based ingredients. We'd argue though that it will be less sort of ingredients overall because we're replicating the actual protein itself. And oftentimes people are adding other compounds to sort of substitute nutritionally for the lack of protein and also the functionality to make it work. But because we're recreating one of the key proteins that you find in cheese, which is casein, then you don't need to add some of the other ingredients to make it function like uh, cheese. And so it should be a cleaner ingredients list initially, but with future evolutions of our cheese making process, we also have other methods that we're going to be exploring, which we call our V2 and V3 methods, whereby we can actually change and redefine the cheese making process again completely and look at other things like coagulation methods and so forth and sort of mimic actually conventional curd, curd creation, as you'd see in traditional cheese making today. So do you anticipate that eventually you'll be able to almost replicate different kinds of cheese? Because I know that right now you go into the supermarkets and you've got a choice of mozzarella style or cheddar style and there's thousands of cheeses. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think there's great work being done with fermented nut products and things like that now. So you are seeing sort of an emergence of things like camemberts and things like that using nut-based technologies. But once again, you're always compromising, usually on something. I mean, it's often texturally slightly different. It's got a more sort of gritty mouthfeel. But, you know, there are products emerging using this technology. But what I really love about dairy is that if you think of all the cheeses that exist on the planet today, they all come from one input source, which is milk. And then through fermentation and ripening of the curd, that's what creates all of this diversity of cheese, which I find super fascinating. And what is the magical ingredient in all of that in terms of fermentation and ripening is microorganisms, culturing mediums, you know, lactic acid bacteria and so forth. And I just find that super fascinating. So with the power of microbes, you've got the ability to transform food. And so we're sort of tapping into that idea, but instead of using microbes with milk, we're actually using microbes to recreate functional compounds and then formulating them. So if you like, we're building the Lego blocks of food that we can then reassemble into many different end products over time. There's no surprises why we're starting with mozzarella and cheddar because it's by far the most widely consumed cheese. And I I think that will also help us create scale, which is important for us to reduce our costs. But yes, absolutely beyond that, we can then use this technology to work on other types of cheeses. And one thing that we're working on in terms of our future cheese making method is to combine the traditional cheese making techniques of ripening the curd with other cultures to thereby create the cheeses that you're referring to in terms of more artisanal cheeses and other types of cheeses in future. So yes, That's the plan in time to absolutely create a spectra of different cheeses with different cultures to mimic exactly the the cheeses that people are love and are fond of that you can't really find effectively in the plant-based or nut-based world. I think one of the things with those as well is that you mentioned the camemberts and you also mentioned cost. I think that there are some camembert style plant-based cheeses around, but some of them are really expensive. And do you risk spending two to three times as much for a product that you're not sure if you're going to like? So how are you how are you approaching keeping the cost down so that people will try the products that you're creating? That's a great question. And and you're absolutely right. For the vegan and vegetarian consumer, oftentimes they are willing to pay a super premium for a product to have that experience and oftentimes at a compromise of taste or performance and texture and so forth. But yes, coming back to your question of how we're going to achieve that, well, 
it's through that method that I already described. So starting through the lens of cheddar and mozzarella to create the volume, because really the unit economics for this technology are driven by two key factors, the yield that you're producing through your R&D and your fermentation. And then secondly, the actual scale that you're fermenting at. And so it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario whereby you need the scale to drive down cost, but of course you have to start somewhere. And so the initial products will be very expensive, but you then need the scale to create the consumer demand, which will then create more scale, which will then drive down the cost. And that's why we decided to take the approach of building sort of a consumer facing and product brand initially with Change Foods because of that very reason. So driving consumer adoption for other reasons as well in terms of marketing and labeling and so forth. And we think that by having the control of that in terms of what it's called in marketing and so forth is beneficial to our strategy. But nonetheless, it's really also there as a vehicle for us to incrementally scale our compounds and our fermentation, which will drive down unit economics through the lens of cheddars and, and mozzarellas, which is, you know, once again, what's going to drive velocity on shelf and demand and thereby bringing down our costs. We predict that somewhere, you know, 2025 through 2027, we'll start getting unit economics that are very viable, which will therefore allow us to pivot and to do more innovations in other types of cheese products or even other types of dairy products like yogurt and so forth. And in terms of the nutritional value and sustainability, what do you see as the benefits of this? There's many, actually. I think nutritionally, we can really get close to the same nutritional value of traditional dairy and cheese. And that's one of the huge benefits of this technology. So we're creating you know, um, products that will have equivalent properties on the positive side, but also trying to eliminate um, as many of the downsides as possible. So they'll be lactose free. And just by definition, because we're not using animals in the equation, they'll be cholesterol free. No antibiotics will be used in the supply chain, the manufacturing process. And so we're trying to replicate as best of the good parts of dairy, because dairy is an interesting category of foods, because People often have the perception of dairy being very nourishing. We've grown up with having milk and dairy, and it's got this very sort of perceived halo of a very nourishing ingredient. So we feel like we absolutely have to meet the nutritional value that currently exists, which this technology can allow. And coming back to your sustainability question, with not raising a cow to two to three years, you know, and of course all of the feedstock, the water and everything else that goes into that process, you know, obviously just by eliminating that process from something that takes years to something that takes just weeks to ferment, obviously has a lot of potential um, savings in water, land usage, even energy. I mean, energy is probably the thing that's used the most to power fermentation. But of course, if you can use renewable energy sources as well in future fermentation sites, which is what a lot of these fermentation sites are moving towards or using, then you can really start driving very good um, sustainability metrics in this equation with this technology as well, which is obviously hugely important for a more sustainable production method and efficient production method with much less waste in that equation. And because it's additive manufacturing, not reductive manufacturing, there's just benefits in that as well, right? Because raising a cow, raising that whole system to really just harness milk, and then everything else is effectively a byproduct in that equation that you have to monetize or create value from, um, from a very industrial lens. And that's called a reductive manufacturing process because you start with milk and then even within milk you have to strip it down and then you end up with milk byproducts like lactose and everything else that then the industry has to commoditize and sell and use in other food products and so forth just to make the whole system profitable let's just create the compounds we need in the most efficient way possible and then the rest solves itself out because you're not recreating everything that you then have to find value for you're just creating the thing that you actually need to create the product that you're looking for and that's the additive manufacturing approach which is what's so powerful about this process and when it comes to 
actually launching plant-based products and these cheeses, how will you communicate those benefits to consumers? Because there's already a lot of plant-based products out there. How will you communicate those benefits? Language is so important in this space, and that's why it was great to bring on board Arena Gerry into our executive team you know, as early as possible. Because even though we don't have a product on shelf for two to three years, language is so important in this space. With a new-to-the-world technology, commercializing it to the masses for people to understand what it is and what are the benefits of it. And so... The simplest way to describe it is this sort of animal-free lexicon that's been established, I think is very helpful because it's animal-free cheese. And in some ways, it's saying that it's sort of real cheese, but just produced via a different way. And I think just with that sentiment alone, it helps people bridge that gap. And by real cheese, we mean we're creating cheese that has identical dairy compounds. And by just explaining it in a very simple way, and ultimately for people to just try it, <laughs> I think, you know, we see ourselves as a food company first and foremost, that's backed by this technology. And so when you're talking with food, it's about taste and the experience. That's what people connect with. And then brand, of course, as well. And so we don't want to talk to it too technically. We don't want to sit in the lab and talk about the science. I mean, people don't want to eat an algorithm. They want to eat something that tastes delicious and they have a great experience with. And so that's what we're going to be leaning on in terms of what it's delivering in terms of value to the consumer. You can have the same cheese you like, but without the compromise. You're not compromising on taste. You're not compromising on texture. And then you're not even compromising then on sustainability or the planet. And this is where it's sort of it's that sweet spot of still delivering the same product, but without the impacts that come with it as well. Down the road, obviously, we're starting with cheese here and you're looking to a few years before it's on shelves do you eventually anticipate being able to move into products like yogurts as well yeah yeah totally we're creating a modular technology and so i see cheese as like a car using that analogy and we're creating the engine of the car and the chassis and the frame and the doors and everything else and so with that modular sort of approach then it means that we can actually pivot and take the engine and then use it for something else. And that's why, you know, we're building proteins, we're building fats and aromas and so forth. But with proteins themselves, we can start integrating whey proteins, for example, in future to then start making products such as yogurt. I think yogurt certainly is probably one of the ones I'm most interested in as a second product, because once again, there is also a performance gap that exists with, especially with things like a Greek style yogurt. I mean, there's some fantastic coconut yogurts out there, but oftentimes people either don't like coconut or it imparts a strong flavor which you're not looking for whereas this technology can recreate i think a, a very good yogurt curd that you can then um, use other cultures for and create a great product but of course the unit economics in that scenario are even more aggressive than cheese that's why starting with cheese is the sensible option and then sort of working down into other products in future once you've scaled and made the unit economics work is it something where you would be able to use the cheeses, yogurts, whatever it is that you're creating as a vehicle for delivery of other things like probiotics or vitamins? Yeah. or Yeah, exactly. So once again, coming back to the additive manufacturing approach, the virtue of doing that means that once again, building the Lego blocks that you actually need, but then you can actually you know, reformulate with other things that the consumer is looking for at that point in time. I mean, it does come down to the zeitgeist at that particular point in time. And right now the zeitgeist is all about protein, right? Everyone wants protein, even though we get plenty of protein in our diet, it's just, it's just what people are looking for, for example. And so, you know, we can deliver on protein. That's great. But in future, it could be something else. I mean, gut health is certainly an emerging trend, which I'm a strong advocate for and believe in, in terms of the microbiome and its power and influence on the holistic system of the body's immunity and everything else. And so, 
you know, adding probiotics, adding prebiotics to formulations in future and things like that is, is hugely uh, possible and in fact encouraged because coming you know, to a customizable format, we've got to be adaptable. And I think this technology once again can allow for that as well, which is exciting. One of the main drivers of the press release that came out was the fact that you've got more funding. What does that funding allow you to be able to do in the short and medium term? Yeah, sure. We're, I mean, we're focused on producing our first cheese prototypes, um, which we're very laser focused on. So it's absolutely going to go towards that. We're actually scaling up our fermentation compounds to larger volumes to produce enough product for us to actually use in our prototypes. So that's where a lot of the funding will be redirected. We're also setting up a laboratory here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So a lot of it will be geared towards the setup of the lab and obviously recruitment of some technical staff over the next few months as well. Tate and Lyle recently launched two new liquid versions of Promotor to make adding fibre to applications, including confectionery, beverages and bars, easier and more cost-effective. Mark Robert, Technical Director of Food and Beverage Solutions at Tate and Lyle, can tell us more. Could you tell me something about the new Promotor range? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, our range of offerings in our soluble corn fiber portfolio continues to grow to meet consumer desires for fortification and sugar reduction. Our Promotor soluble corn fiber products are excellent for both of these applications. Our original soluble corn fiber, Promotor 70, was 70% fiber. Then we developed Promotor 85, which is a a workhorse in our portfolio. Uh, It's used extensively in a a range of dairy applications like ice cream, frozen desserts, yogurt, and dairy beverages. We now have soluble corn fiber 90 for applications where you're looking for higher fiber content and lower sugars. Some of the specialty offerings in our Promotor product line include Promotor 90B, which was developed specifically for nutritional bar applications, where it helps maintain the desired texture through shelf life. And now we have Promotor W, which was developed for confectionery applications like chewy candies. And in terms of labeling, is it clean label? Well, all of our soluble corn fibers, all the Promotor line can be labeled as soluble corn fiber, or it can be labeled as resistant maltodextrin or soluble glucose fiber. Those are some of the more common options for labeling. And in terms of consumer recognition, do you do any research as to what consumer perception is of some of these products? Yeah, yes. Our global marketing team does look at different namings and uh, consumer perceptions of those names on an ingredient statement. And for the most part, it seems like soluble corn fiber is the most preferred and most used option in the different labeling options for our Promotor line. You've added liquid versions of these. What's the reasoning behind that? In many applications, being able to use fiber in a syrup is a big advantage to our customers. Soluble corn fiber is really effective at replacing corn syrup in many applications, including ice cream. So being able to handle soluble corn fiber in the same manner as corn syrup makes that transition much easier when you're reformulating products to either fortify with fiber or reduce sugars. In other product categories like nutritional bars, the soluble corn fiber is used as a binding agent and it functions much better when used in the syrup form. Uh, In some high solids applications like chewy candies, soluble corn fiber in the syrup form 
prevents challenges with hydration or dispersion. And are there any other benefits to the liquid versions? From a functional standpoint, the liquid versions are going to, in most cases, function just like the powdered versions. It's more about customer preference and handling. In general, if a customer has a bulk silo available, a place where they can store the liquid versions, it's going to be a lot easier for them in handling and bringing it in and using it in their operation. But the key is having the mechanism for handling bulk syrups. If customers do have that mechanism and they're using large quantities where they can turn over tanker loads of soluble corn fiber, then a lot of times that'll be their preference. Does it present any differences in terms of like if you were using soluble corn fiber instead of a powdered form or instead of a solid form, does it present any differences in the way that they have to use it? I would say the one thing with using a liquid version is that you need to be sure that the original formula has enough moisture to account for the water portion of the syrup whenever you're formulating with it. Otherwise, when you're using fiber sources, you're typically using a pretty um, significant amount in your formula, sometimes in the range of 5 to 6% of your formula. So if you're using powdered version, then that means you're usually dumping bags or using bulk 2,000 pound or 1,000 kg bulk bags. Whereas if you're using liquid, you can just meter it in from bulk silos directly to your mixing area. Would that mean less waste and less cleanup by having the liquid version? Yeah, it avoids a lot of the packaging. And, you know, when you're trying to be more sustainable, having the advantage of bulk and liquid is much better than having to dispose of the bags that you would use in uh, the powdered version of the soluble corn fiber. And are these ingredients that can be used in conjunction with other things that you have in your portfolio? Oh, yeah, definitely. Chromator soluble corn fiber is a great tool to be used in combination with low-calorie sweeteners to reduce sugars and calories in, in a wide range of foods. My dairy team has a lot of experience formulating no-sugar added and reduced-sugar frozen desserts. In these applications, the Chromator soluble corn fiber can be used to provide body in bulk that's missing when you remove the sugars. It can be used in tandem with our Dolce Prima Allulose, which is a, a low-calorie sweetener that has very good freezing point depression. And then to balance the sweetness, this combination can be used with our Tasteva Stevia offerings or our Pure Fruit Monk Fruit, which are both natural high-potency sweeteners. And you know, similar combinations can be used and similar strategies in bakery, confectionery, and in nutritional supplements and beverages as well. You mentioned the sweeteners. One of the biggest deals right now is sugars, and you do ingredients for ice cream. How are you able to formulate new products without any added sugars and, and have them taste as good without any aftertaste that you might get with some sweetening agents? Yeah, as we discussed, Tate & Lyle has the innovative low-calorie sweeteners and fibers to replace sugars and all of the sweetening and functional attributes that sugars bring to frozen desserts. You know, we talked about the Promotor. It provides bulk and it provides the body that you need when you take out sugars. The Dolce Prima Allulose, it provides sweetness and it provides freezing point depression, which is another critical property that sugars lend to ice cream. You take the sugars out, you need to be able to depress the freezing point and allulose is great at that. And then, you know, there's been such great advancement in the natural high potency sweeteners. 
the stevia of today is nothing like the stevias that were first introduced 10 years ago. You know, we have our Tasteva range of stevias, Tasteva D, these different rebocides that are much cleaner. It allows us to use them in frozen desserts and not have off flavors and not, not have that lingering effect that you originally got with the original Stevia offerings. And Tate and Lyle's stabilizer and functional systems platform allows us to source external ingredients that we use to develop stabilizer systems to optimize the texture and stability of frozen desserts. Because it's not just about the flavor. With ice cream, you're expecting that texture or that indulgence. So our scientists have the knowledge and the expertise to develop stabilizer systems. And we have a global supply chain with the ability to source thousands of ingredients for our stabilizer and functional systems platform. And besides ice cream stabilizer systems, we also specialize in stabilizers for yogurt, chocolate-flavored milks, and plant-based dairy alternatives as well. So between our extensive sweeteners portfolio and our stabilizer and functional systems platform, we have all the tools to formulate premium quality, no sugar added ice creams and frozen desserts. You mentioned how the stevia of today is not the same as stevia from 10 years ago. How do you communicate that with your customers in order to get that message across to consumers who probably don't know that ingredients change over time? Well, the way we like to do it is showing them the actual proof. We've developed a full range of concepts. My team has done dairy concepts, highlighting our stevia and showing how you can reduce sugars without giving up, without sacrificing anything in taste or performance. I know in other categories, my colleagues have done the same. We have a full range of prototypes and, and formulas that we can share with our customers that really show how you can remove sugars, which we're all trying to do, but still not sacrifice in taste. And that's for your customers. What about the end consumers? What kind of research have you done on um, the end consumer? We do our own proprietary research, and a lot of it revolves around consumers, consumer perceptions, and consumer intents. And our research shows that 45% of U.S. adult consumers plan to increase, first of all, their fiber consumption over the next 12 months, but then also 56% of consumers plan to decrease their sugar consumption. And that's for a variety of health reasons. Sugar reduction in dairy applications, it's nothing new. If you look at over the last four years, about 25% of product launches in yogurt, flavored milks, frozen desserts, and the plant-based alternatives have all had some type of reduced sugar or reduced calorie or reduced carbohydrate claim. And when it comes to the sweetener preference used for sugar reduction, our research shows that Consumers prefer the non-artificial, low-calorie sweeteners like stevia and monk fruit and allulose over other options like sugar alcohols and artificial sweeteners. So it's a matter of showing them the quality and showing them that they can have what they prefer, these natural low-calorie sweeteners, and still not sacrifice on flavor and taste. Do you do research in different parts of the world? I mean, I wonder, does are some sweeteners more acceptable or more recognized in North America and different ones in Asia, for example? Yeah, absolutely. The research we do is global and we can break it down by region. And I know a lot of it will depend on which sweeteners are approved in which regions. 
Algulose, for example, it's approved in North America, it's approved in Mexico, it's approved in Korea, but it doesn't have full approval in all countries in Asia, for example. It's not yet approved. It's going through the process, but it's not yet approved in China, for example. Our research will lead us there as well as far as what is approved and what we can use. And it gives us an idea of you know, where there may be opportunities going forward. And how are you able to work with your customers on new formulations and new products? So our dairy team has a high level of expertise in the science of formulating ice creams. In total, our team has over 120 years of experience in the ice cream industry. Our team has helped many of our customers formulate or reformulate into white spaces or better for you options in this category. We have a state-of-the-art pilot plant facility for our scientists to develop and evaluate ice creams for our customers. Four of our team members are associated with the Collegiate Dairy Products Judging Contest. Three of these are regional ice cream judges, and one is a, a national ice cream judge. We've used this ice cream judging expertise to develop a sensory scale for measuring and quantifying the key textural attributes of ice cream. We can use this scale to determine if our customer products meet expectations for texture and stability through heat shock abuse testing. So in the range of ice cream product development, we can provide resources for the entire spectrum of this process, from formulating expertise to ingredient sourcing options, pilot plant resources, prototype development, sensory expertise, and even on-site production support for scale-up and commercialization. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets from StoneX, and this week it's with Charlie Highland. Hi, Jim. Um, well, it's been another bit of a roller coaster week on the, on the dairy markets here in Europe. We basically, the, the, the physical spot market quotations have continued to move down, just released uh, today here, down 1% um, on the week. But over the last week, we have had been seeing the futures markets uh, starting to trend a little bit higher. And now I think it all reversed uh, essentially yesterday when the global dairy trade, the GDT auction, surprised a lot of people by printing quite low numbers. It was down 2.9% overall. But perhaps some of the biggest surprises was the skim milk powder down 5.2% and whole milk powder down 3.8%. When most people were forecasting it to be fairly stable overall. So that was quite a, quite a disappointing auction. Other things which have been, uh, you know, I suppose supporting a, a move lower has been the fact that EU exports, um, which were out for May there, were, were lower than expected as well. Uh, they were down about 5.9% on a milk equivalent basis, which was uh, which was we were expecting on average down uh, less than 1%. So, so quite a big move um, lower. And a part of this, I think, has been uh, the move down in general um, has been down to the fact that um, there seems to be a bit of quietness on, in terms of the, the trade flow going into China. Well, we were expecting their imports to be out in the next uh, 24 hours, and we were keenly watching that. But we certainly saw a lack of uh, Chinese buying on the GDT auction, which is part of the reason for the decline. Um, they were buying a lot less than they normally would. Um, so, so that's a bit of a concern. So we're, again, keenly watching these uh, import numbers um, over the next 24 hours or so. 
On top of that, then, the other things which are possibly adding to the decline down is the global milk production numbers continue to be quite strong. In Europe, uh, the May numbers, which are the latest ones we have, are up about um, 2.5% on average on a milk solids basis. But we are starting to see signs of that uh, reducing, um, certainly from some of the major countries in Europe, uh, UK, France and Germany. So we're starting to see their milk production start to um, turn slightly negative. So, um, yeah, a little bit of a bearish week after what had started to be um, looking like a bullish one. So uh, let's continue to monitor. And and I think, as I said, keenly watching these Chinese import numbers, uh, hopefully in the next 24 hours. Great. Thanks, Charlie. We'll talk to either you or Liam again next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another show. Next week, it's the end of July, as the summer here seems to be flying by. Next week's podcast is almost done in terms of the interviews, but of course, we're always happy to hear suggestions of news to feature to keep it as diverse as possible, both geographically and subject-wise. There's still plenty of noise outside with all of the roadworks going on, but inside, in spite of a dog and a child, it's eerily quiet, so my next job is to discover why. It may involve Lego, one trying to build it and the other trying to eat it, and I'll leave you to decide which one's which. And so, I hope that wherever in the world you may be, you have a great week ahead. You'll join us next time and register for the webinar. So until then, take care, stay safe, and, as always, thanks for listening.